Isaiah chapter 54, we will pick up in verse 1. It says this. It says, Sing, O barren one, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. We just had Mother's Day as a holiday, and I know that it was a little anticlimactic. Mother's Day is one of the busiest days in the church each year. It rivals Easter. It really does. And that's mostly because a lot of people will look to their mom and say, Mom, what do you want to do on Mother's Day? And she will say, hey, will you join me at church? And so we see a lot of people they don't always see. So Mother's Day this year felt very different. In fact, Easter felt very different. Not having us together, not seeing your faces, not doing things, just felt very different. But there was a conversation I had around Mother's Day, and I have a good friend who has, in fact, I I know a lot of people this way, but I had a conversation with a friend who has never been able to have children. She wanted to be a mom. She has struggled to have kids. And there's a sense in our culture today where some want to have kids and some don't, and so it's not always obvious when people don't have kids whether that's what they chose or whether physically that's what they were limited to. And in this case, that is her story. And Mother's Day is always a challenging time for her. And she always reminds me, hey, that there are people out there that really strongly want to be moms and can't. How do we care for them too? And this passage reminds us of that. It says, sing a song, O barren one, like worship God, O barren one, who did not bear children, right? Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children, here comes a promise, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. And so this longing to have children is not a place where many people just celebrate and worship. In fact, it's a place where they mourn and lament. But God is using this image of a woman without children, and he's saying, sing, praise, worship, celebrate. Because my promise to you is that you will bear children more than the one who is easily able to conceive. Now, There's an image, and Isaiah, as I said in the opening note, Isaiah is using these images. He's going to give us the image of a barren woman who has a family, a lonely wife whose marriage is restored, and then a poor and broken down city that becomes wealthy and secure. He's going to use these images to teach us who we are. And I said there are three lenses we have to look through. So there's the historical lens. 2,700 years ago, roughly, as Isaiah's disciples are unfolding the scrolls of Isaiah and telling them what God has for them, they were coming out of captivity. They'd been captive in Babylon, and then God raised up a leader and ahead of time told them what would happen and said, listen, here's how I'm going to deliver you, and then God did it. And so they've been set free. They've begun to work their way back into their own homes, their own land. And as they're working their way back, God is reminding them why they were in exile. And it was because of their sin, because they didn't listen when God was saying, hey, listen, you're drifting, come back. You're, you're going in this direction. You're, you're following other gods. You're pursuing things that are not of me. And he would call them to return in love and care and pursuit. He would call them to return. But as they would harden their hearts or stiffen their necks to not listen to him, God would then lift his blessing off them. And when they continued spiritually distancing themselves from God, going another direction, embracing false worship, denying God. Then God said, listen, if you don't return to me, I will take you into exile until you will listen. And so God allowed that exile. In fact, God ordained that exile. God commanded that exile. And so Babylon conquered them and took them into captivity. 
And so God began to speak to them, and they're in their lowest place as they've lost everything. God speaks to them, and they begin to return to him. They begin to repent and to return. And so after some time, God releases them to be a people again, a gathered people again. And again, there's a lot that we can relate to right now as we feel a bit exiled. But this was a massive, you lose everything. You're subjected to another nation. You're enslaved to them. And so as this is taking place, God is calling to return. As they're coming back out, there's a historical sense that Isaiah speaks to here. And they're hearing this roughly 2,700 years ago. So that's one lens. We've got to ask, how did they hear it, and what, how do we understand that? Fast forward to our day today, we'll ask, how do we hear this? And we hear this, obviously, on the other side of the gospel taking root and, and being fulfilled as Jesus became flesh and lived a sinless life and, and died a vicarious death on our behalf, paid the penalty for our sins, was buried in a grave and resurrected three days later, the very thing we just celebrated on Easter and Generations Church, we celebrate every Sunday. And then Jesus ascended back to heaven, poured out his spirit on us, his church, and promised his return. That gospel takes root in history roughly 2,000 years ago. The thing promised by God for so long takes place. And then Jesus draws us into God and promises he will return and make everything right. And we live in that in-between and so in the gospel, we also hear this, that when we live for things other than God, we distance ourselves from God. And when we return in the gospel, we are welcomed home and that we are made new and completed and fulfilled and restored and redeemed, all those things that God gives us. And then there's also this eternal sense that God promises, listen, I will do this ultimately and completely once for all. And so we live in between those. And so those are the lenses we can see this passage by today. How does it affect us? What do we learn about history? And what do we still look forward to? So I want to read verse 1 again. It says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So this first image, this woman with no children, is told she will have wealth, that she will have a wealth of family, that she will be made complete. And the promise here, the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, meaning God will provide more by faith than we can by flesh. That's true through all those lenses. The images of this woman who really can't find her joy, who can't find her purpose, who can't find her meaning in life because of her situation. Now, we can pull out of that and imagine ourselves in different situations where we can identify with that. And the idea is that when we find our joy or our fulfillment in life, when I find my joy or fulfillment in my marriage, when I find my joy or fulfillment in my ministry, my, my workplace, my education, my position, my wealth or lack thereof, whatever it might be, when we find our joy, our satisfaction, our wholeness or completeness in this life based on things of this life, we often find ourselves very empty. When things don't go well, we find ourselves without and God is saying, listen, by faith I will make you complete, not by flesh. Verse 2, it says this, Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, 
and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. He's saying, listen, expand, think larger than you can imagine. What I will do by faith, I will do greater than you anticipate. I do greater than you ask. You've been looking here and you've been finding no joy because you haven't had what you want because you look here to this world. But if you will lift your eyes up from this world and look to me, God says, listen, I will fulfill all those things and I will do greater than all you can ask or imagine as the New Testament reminds us that I will fulfill in you greater things. Spread your tent stakes out further. Stretch your line out deeper. I will do more. He says, no, stretch that line out. No, more. Go further. Go further. I will do greater things. So growth in God. Here's a note for you that are note takers. God teaches us something counterintuitive here. When we seek what we want in the world, we end up empty. But when we seek God, we end up fulfilled. When we seek the things of this world, we find ourselves empty and without. And that's because the things of this world are misleading and they're empty anyways. As soon as we, we achieve something we want, it seems like we need more. You go out and you get the newest iPhone, and as soon as you get it, it's old, and you're like, I want the newer one, right? Or, or you, you do so, you want more, you want to achieve this income bracket, as the famous John Rockefeller quote, how much money is enough money? says one of the richest men in the world, a little bit more. This world is empty. This world leaves us longing for more, but God says, listen, I will fulfill all of that and I will give you more than you would ever dream of. Verse four, Isaiah tells the people, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. In this culture, really, for women, widowhood was one of the worst lives to live. When you were widowed, when you were left without a husband, what happened was you, you uh, again, women couldn't own property or have businesses or do much. And so when they were widowed, they were left almost always destitute and poor, unless they had sons that could take on that business and provide for their moms. And in this case, we're looking at a woman with no children and now with no husband to provide for her. Now, modern day setting, not the same, obviously, as women have businesses and can do these things without a husband. But you have to look at the context. Again, 2,700 years ago, when they're hearing this, woman would be, women would be destitute without a husband or a father or sons. And, and they would be in this place. And it says this, fear not, you will not be ashamed. You will not be poor and broken down. Do not be confounded. You will not be disgraced because you have nothing. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Your past, your condition, your, your place will be forgotten. You will remember it no more. The amazing promises of God are that when, he, when God fulfills, God does so much, it's as if you never had a need I've shared this with some of you, and many know my story of drug addiction and crime and jails and prisons and all that. And if you don't, if you're joining us today, uh, my story goes uh, really back into a season of very, hitting rock bottom in a cell and crying out to God, being in and out of jails, in and out of prisons, and finally hitting that space where I knew I needed God. There's obvious a lot to that, but um, my wife and I just, I guess it was Friday, celebrate 21 years of marriage. And we got married six months after I paroled from prison the last time. 
And I remember getting out, and I turned 30. My birthday's coming up in a week. And I, I turned 30 21 years ago, and I remember that number just sounded at that time like I had thrown away so much of my life that, that where I was um, in life was worse than where most 18-year-olds should be. I, I was not only had no job, had no career, had no education, had no, uh, well, I had nothing, right? And even worse, I was on parole and had record, had all these things against me. And I remember feeling like, listen, I've thrown away so much life. And, and I don't know if it was when I was 30 or 31 or 32. I don't remember when exactly, but it was, it was early there. And God gave me this verse out of Joel 2.25. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, the, my great army whom I sent among you. And, and what that verse is about is, is when the people of God had wandered away from God in another season, a lot like the one we're looking at in Isaiah, God sent a, a plague of locusts to devour their crops and to take from them what they were relying on. And God gave them this promise that when they returned to him, that, I would, that he, God, would restore to them the years that the locusts had taken from them. And so when I got out, after all that was taking place, and I was looking at my life, and I was feeling so far beyond, behind everyone else, I remember God gave me this verse that said, listen, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Now, fast forward today, getting ready to turn 51, and I, as I tell you those stories about my past, it's like telling you about someone else. My life has been so changed and fulfilled and transformed in Christ that I, I don't lack for anything from those first 30 years. God has fulfilled that promise in me. Any other 51-year-old man could be doing what I'm doing right now and have never been do, had never had all the problems that I had. This would be a normal place to be. God has restored all that to me and given all that back to me in Christ. So here's what you need to hear. God is promising restoration to those who follow him. That might be financial or, or relational or anything else, whatever it might be, restoring the things that you gave away through your choices. I gave away through my sin, my choices, my rebellion. There's that promise. I will take from you the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Verse 5, it says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. The second image is a woman who's been left by her husband. Again, not the widow in the first one where she was seeking fulfillment in her family, in her status, in her place. But this is a woman who had found some of that and then lost it because her husband left for whatever reason. The second image is a wife deserted but redeemed by God. He reminds her, he says, listen, I am your husband. I am your maker. I am your redeemer. God promises, listen, I am the one that provides. I am the one that commits to you. I am the one that gives you love, gives you security, gives you peace makes you a home. God had left the people due to their sin. He had, uh, he had lifted his hand off of them. They, I would probably say it this way, God didn't leave them, they left God. And God lifted his hand off them after calling them back, calling them back, please return to me, come back to me. Here's the penalty if you don't. Listen to me, hear my words, return to me. And when they would not, 
just lifted his hand off of them, and they were destroyed. They were taken captive. They were enslaved. And a lot of times in our lives, as we run further and further away from God, our sin enslaves us. Again, I come from a background of addiction. I know what it feels like to be powerless over something that I created, that, that I gave into, that I started, that became so big, I couldn't do it on my own, right? That I couldn't get out of. God had to deliver me from that addiction. I wasn't strong enough anymore. And God is saying, listen, I am the one. I am your strength. I am your husband. I am your redeemer. I am the one that brings you back. Verse 7, God says this to the people, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God is saying this. Again, Isaiah 54 is in a section, and this is sounding really obvious, this is the big E on the eye chart though, right after Isaiah 52, 53, right? That this comes right on the heels of God proclaiming Christ who lived and suffered and died, was, was crucified and died and buried for our sin, beaten for our sin, persecuted for what we have done wrong. He had no sin, but he bore our sin and that he was buried to cover our sin. Then as he rose to life again, he does that to give us new life. On the other side of God proclaiming that will happen, God says this, I will cover your sin and restore you. This is how you will live that gospel out. See, the gospel is really simple in its essence. It's, it's unending in its implications into our life. And the gospel isn't something that invites us to Jesus, but the gospel is the very power that connects us to God, that keeps us in God, and that promises us that we will stand before God face to face in Christ and that we will enter into God's presence forever. You see, the, the gospel is the very power that sustains us day in, day out, transforms us to look more like Jesus day in, day out, as long as we live. We will never be perfect like Jesus. We will never be sinless. We will always struggle in this flesh to live fully for God. But the gospel is that God created us and loves us, designed us, made us to be worshipers of his, that we would be followers, that our lives would give glory to God, not give glory to ourselves. And, and Christians struggling through this current climate in our culture with the restrictions on what we can do or can't do, remember this, God created us to give glory to God, not to ourselves. We have to die to ourselves, but that's what happened. Sin entered into human history. Humanity chose their own way, chose to glorify themselves, follow what they wanted instead of following God. And that sin severed the relationship. Like infidelity in a marriage, it drove a wedge between us and God. And God, after calling and loving and calling us to return, promising us there is a way back, God entered into human history in flesh, his son, Jesus who lived a sinless life, the life we are called to live but fail. He died a vicarious death. He died a death in our place. He was buried to cover our sin. He was risen to life in three days to give us new life so that we don't just become forgiven broken people, but we become restored brand new people, that we are given that new life, that he ascends back to heaven because it's completed and fills us with his spirit, empowers us to live for him, empowers us to be those who live for God. And then he promises, listen, wait, be patient. 
Live for us. Live for us. Here, share this gospel with others. I will return and make everything that's broken, I will make it right one day. In the meantime, you be my witnesses to those around you. You share the love of the gospel with those around you. That's what's going on here. He says, for a brief moment, God says, I deserted you. For a, a moment, I hid my face from you. But now, now I have come to you. Now I'm welcoming you back in. Through Christ, we have a redeemer. Colossians says it this way, for in him, meaning Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, heaven, or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The very promise of Isaiah 52 and 53 is not just that our sins are forgiven, but that we're restored to God, that we're redeemed or made right again. And God welcomes us back in. We have the opportunity now to live differently because of the gospel, because of Jesus. Verse 9 says this, this is like the days of Noah to me. And as I swore that the waters of Noah should no, long, no more go, excuse me, go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and not rebuke you. Right? The days of Noah were sinful. You don't have to know a lot about the Bible. You've probably heard the story of Noah and the flood. And God comes to Noah and says, listen, man, the entire earth is only evil all the time. There's a strong statement in Genesis 6. He says, and so you will proclaim return to God or a flood. Return to God or God's going to flood the earth. And God does just that as the people mock Noah. God floods the earth. But God's promise in that is that I will never do that again. Looking forward to the cross, that there will be one penalty for sin in Jesus and promising redemption on the other side. As Noah gets to the other side of the flood, God begins again, reminding us that we get new life through the resurrection. Verse 10, he says this, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. The promise of the gospel is that there is a promise, a guarantee of peace between us and God. Remember that, that sin came in and severed the relationship, that when we sin, not only have we inherited sin, but we also sin. And so we drive that wedge deeper between us, a sinful humanity, and God, a holy God. And Christ bridges that and promises peace. We're no longer at war with God. But peace has been made. God has welcomed us home. Verse 11, he says, O afflicted ones, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antennae and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all of your wall of precious stones. The idea here is this third city, there's this poor, broken-down city, and God is promising restoration. That antimony, this, this silver, shiny, chemical, metal substance, the sapphires, these precious stones, the agates and the carbuncles, that this, this broken down, busted up city is the third image, and God is making it both wealthy and secure. So just consider this, their broken down city 2,700 years ago when they were stripped from their country and from their land and from their homes, that's being restored to them. Literally in history, this is happening to them. Spiritually, for us in the gospel, that that the things that we have depended on or the things that we have messed up in life, the things that we have done are being restored in Christ. And then also eternally, 
God is saying, I will right everything that is wrong. I will heal and fix everything that is broken in Christ. Ultimately, I will restore the world. Revelation, all the way at the, end of the, at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 says this, echoing what Isaiah said. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There's all kinds of descriptions of God making everything right in Christ, ultimately and eternally. Many of them paint this picture of a city a beautiful, strong, and secure city, a city where the streets are gold. In other words, the very thing like asphalt or concrete to us that is so limited and so not what we want, well, that's what like riches and wealth is at that point. The city is so wealthy, even the streets are made of gold. The gates are lined with precious stones and gems. God is painting a picture not of wealth, but of beauty and fulfillment, of security, of of supply for us, that everything we need is cared for in Christ. Verse 13, so here's this broken down city God is restoring as the third image. Verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, and you shall be far from oppression. For you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. All these images, the, the woman with no children, the woman whose husband is left, and the city that's been broken down. As God paints these pictures of restoration, there's some commonality between these three images. There's, there's some common themes in each of these that we're to understand and learn from. Let me give you just a few of them. So images, all of these seek the world and miss God. Isaiah shows longing and deep dissatisfaction in this world. Today we get caught up in the wealth and the pursuits of life, and we miss what God is calling us to. Will we settle for things that can't satisfy or seek the joy that lasts forever? All of these images show people focused on this life, focused on things that should satisfy them in this world, in this flesh. And God is always calling us to lift our eyes up off of that and find our satisfaction in Him. That's the first common thing between all three images. Here's the second one. The images all multiply. The images of the barren woman, the lonely life, and the poor city all benefit the next generation, not just the recipient. God's promises are, always, are, are for us as well as for others. Can we lift our eyes off ourselves and see what God says truly matters? There is this understanding that when we are so caught up in what we want, that it's about us, that the mistake we can make in the gospel is that it's all about us. That when we receive from God, that it's just to benefit us. Every image of restoration passes on to another generation. It talks about the woman having kids or, or the woman whose marriage is restored to the next generation. And then the city and the teaching their children. We need to know that what God does in us does benefit us, does bless us. But we are blessed to be a blessing. That we are restored. That we might then join Jesus on his mission to see others restored. That nothing from God just dead ends into us, that we pass it on. And, and there's the, the third one here, is community in every image. Isaiah reminds us that our faith is never lived out alone. Faith grows in the community of the church, modern day. Isaiah shows us people seeking independence as barren and lonely, but finding fulfillment in God as a community, family, marriage, city. 
modern day application, people grow their faith in the context of a local church, right? Old Testament in the temple, the synagogue, the tabernacle, modern day, the church, that we don't live this life of following Jesus alone, that there's no way to faithfully live out what Jesus calls us to without being deeply connected and rooted in a local church. All of the New Testament leads us to that, reminds us that this is a plurality, that this is a people, that this is a community, that our faith is not an individual pursuit, but a corporate pursuit. One of the very important things we look forward to as we return to gathering together is that corporate aspect of being together. It is different over video. It is different over live stream. It is different when that's all you have. Again, we're grateful for what we have, but we long for more. We won't rush the process, but we know, we desire to be together again. There is that community sense that there is a bond when we gather in corporate worship. It does take place over the internet. It does take place over video. But we all admit it's not the same. We all want it to be together. Back in Isaiah, verse 15, it says this, If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. I want to take a couple things, since we're talking about our current setting in America, in Southern California, for a lot of us and the rest of you, wherever you're live streaming from, I want to take a couple of these things, just modern-day applications to our current situation, right? Especially on the heels of these notifications of things that might be coming. How do we hear this today? How do we take what God has always said and live it out in our current setting today? So the first one, if anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Again, I said this earlier, as an American, you have many rights. You have the right to protest. You have the right to free speech. You have the right to pursue your own faith. All those are granted to you as an American, right? Those are things given away. As a Christian, we surrender our rights to what God calls us to. We surrender all of ourselves, we die to ourselves, and we live for Christ, as all of Scripture teaches us. How do we do that today? First Timothy says this, I urge that supplication and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving, those are all forms of prayer. I urge that prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving, be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. We are called to be a people of peace. Again, this is written under Roman authority in the New Testament. This is written in an era where they're persecuting Christians, where Christians are literally giving their lives for their faith. We're not that. We're not being asked to deny our faith or give our lives for our faith. We've been asked to social distance for a season. Let us not be people that stir up the dissension. Let us not be those on social media who are starting the arguments, who are arguing with everybody and causing the strife. Let us not be those that are out there standing and making the loud noise and defying. Let us be people that are submitted to Jesus. And again, if they ask us to deny our God, I will lead the charge. But right now, they haven't. Let us be a people of peace. Remember the witness it is to our community when we are different than those around us. When we deny ourselves for the sake of the gospel, we show Jesus to the world. Verse 16, Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon 
that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Hear me when I say this. He says, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. The church will not go away in this. In fact, the church has grown. We'll talk about that next week. In our fourth Sunday, which would have been today, in our fourth Sunday update, we'll talk about how our church has grown, how it's been challenged, how it's risen to that challenge, and how God is growing not only our church, but the church at large. People are coming to faith in this crazy season, and they're doing so because the church is a witness for Christ, that no weapon formed against us will succeed. God is our defender. God also meets out the justice. He says, and this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Their vindication from me, declares the Lord. We don't have to go out and execute justice. God executes justice on our behalf. We don't have to go out there and defend ourselves. God defends us. And I get there's a slippery slope, and I get when we get to that place, but we're not there. Let God be our champion. Let God be our justice. And let God defend us. We don't have to. We have a God who defends us. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says this, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. When we look at what God gives us, God says, listen, I provide everything. I give all of it at no cost. My grace, my love, my provision is free. You need nothing but to come to me. Again, Revelation 22, we just talked about Revelation 21. Here's another verse. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That, hall, that, that call of calling everyone to come and be satisfied in Christ is echoed throughout Scripture. We're 700 years before Jesus in this current passage in Isaiah, and we fast forward to the end of everything where God says, come. All we need to do is come. We don't earn God's love. We don't, we don't achieve our path back to God. We come broken and humble, and God provides. God gives us everything we need. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, your effort, your labor, your time for that which does not satisfy? Here's what God is asking all of us today. Why would you give yourselves to things that can never satisfy you? Will you not turn and seek God with everything? Generations Church, that's our call today, that we would come and get what is satisfying, what is eternal, what is fulfilling, and what is life-producing. We find that in Christ. We can't find this. We can't find that in the world. Why would we give ourselves to something that can never satisfy us? Why not surrender ourselves to the one true place where we can gain everything, and that's Christ? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We are humbled that you would choose us, that you would save us, that you would redeem us. There is nothing in me that is worth your love, and yet you have seen fit to love me anyways. Jesus, you have sent your gospel out recklessly, generously, faithfully out to the world, saying anyone who will come, let them come.
And you've warned us time and time again that we spend all our effort, time, money, calendar space, energy, voice, we spend all of that on things that can never satisfy us. We can never find satisfaction in this world because we were designed to find our joy and our satisfaction in you alone, God. That we are a people that can only be satisfied by you alone, God. Let us turn our attentions to pleasing you. Let us turn our efforts to finding, seeking, satisfying you. Let us give our hearts over to you, the only place we will find our joy and our satisfaction. Let us lay everything down and let us pick up our cross, denying ourselves, following Jesus. And let us find that joy, contentment, and peace that you promise. You say, come, drink, come, eat, come, and find your joy. God, help us to do just that. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.